0: There are a lot of libraries installed in any Linux distribution. Libraries are super important to make programmers' jobs easier because if there's a library to do something, you don't have to write the code to do the thing. You just have to invoke the library. The library itself usually has several header files and compiled uh, library files that you can just reference, you can invoke, you you can use a, a function from that library or create a class based on that library, and then do the thing that you want to do within your application. It sounds simple, and I mean... To a degree, it is a lot simpler than not than, than having to invent the code from from the ground up. Uh, it is complex I mean you have to know what a function is you have to know how to call that function you know have to you have to know how to include the library and then when you're compiling it, you need to know you need to make sure that you're compiler knows that the library is on your system and how to get there and how to look for it and so on. So it's, it, it isn't it isn't invisible by any means. It is it is something that you have to actively use and be aware of and kind of understand. But there are a lot of them and we are only in the B section. We're at libburn is the next one in the list. We just did libblu-ray in the previous episode so it's libburn this time. And we've been doing this for several uh, episodes. I mean just the, the L package it's a library package. So I'm going to try to get through a bunch of them today because there's just not that much to say about a lot of them. So LibBurn, for instance, very useful library, undoubtedly. Someone out there loves it. What does it do? It helps you burn media. Uh, CDs, DVDs, Blu-rays. It, that's what it is designed to do. It writes bits in a consistent way, to a very specific media that has expectations on how those bits are delivered that's libburn that's all i'll say about it uh lib next is libcaca libcaca is an ascii text rendering library so for instance let's say you want to display an image but for whatever reason you don't have um a graphics card for that or you don't have uh you don't have a, uh, a, a graphic server. So uh, you can still potentially do that with libkaka, the color ASCII art library, because it will convert pixels to, to, it will use text instead of pixels to display an image. You can test this out. It's kind of a fun thing to do. Um, let's see. I, I tried just kaka clock. C-A-C-A-C-L-O-C-K, but it keeps telling me it can't open the font. So kaka-clock-help dash dash tells me that I can use dash dash font and then point it to a font, but I cannot figure out what format of font it wants. I've tried PC... what is it? PCB? PCM? Something like that. I've tried, you know, normal TTF. I, I, I don't know what it wants for, for its uh, font, so... Couldn't get that to work. So then I tried kaka view. This is supposed to display images. Try that on like a PMG or a JPEG, and it'll tell you can't do that. It needs a BMP, which is like a bitmap. Okay, well, we've covered uh, image magic in previous episodes. So we can do convert path to the JPEG or PNG or whatever you need to convert space foo dot BMP. That ought to work. Kaka view... Foo.bmp error loading foo.bmp. Only BMP is supported, so not really sure what's going on there either. There's there's one last thing that we can try, which is Kaka Play, which is a f- video player. Seems even less likely to get this one work to work. Right. Well, I'll go to my uh, folder with a bunch of um, video files in it. I'll select this WebM video. Can't imagine that's going to work. And what do you know? It 100% works. It it, it can play a WebM somehow perfectly. Now those are just demo applications. I don't th- I, I don't believe that libcaca is necessarily distributed on the strength of those applications but they are fun to to look at and you know in some some mythical time where i'm sitting in front of a computer that doesn't have a graphics card that is capable of displaying graphics or um you know something that's just headless, and I absolutely need to see an image rendered as ASCII text. I guess all of these th- these capabilities would be would be the way to do it. Um, I can't. I I honestly am I'm, I'm not convinced about about that. I, I I I think it seems cool, but I'm I would like to see an image that I could look at as rendered as ASCII text and, and get a, a useful sort of idea of what that image is, you know? I'm just, I'm not convinced. So uh, I'm just, I don't know. Play around with it yourself. I'm not convinced. I believe, I suspect it might be a novelty. Lib Canberra. Canberra um, Lib Canberra is a XDG sound theme and name specification implementation so it's an implementation of the xdg that's the free desktop kind of structure around standards for desktops on on free and open source software systems so this specifically implements the sound system so that you can get audio notifications when you do certain things like if if i were to Oh, I guess I can't hear that. I feel like on one of my computers, I thought it was this one, um, that when I do the sound, you hear sort of a pop, you know, like a little pop sound. Uh, I know that some systems, for instance, when you plug in a USB thumb drive, you'll hear like a a chime or a click or some kind of alert. So there are various alert sounds that you may hear on a desktop. And LibCanberra is a subsystem or or a, yeah an implementation of this specification that is designed to be portable and easy to use across lots of different kinds of systems so that you can be sure that your desktop sounds your your sound alert notification your event sounds are are picked up and played as, as you wish them to be. Uh, personally, I, the, the the time that I run into this the most, it seems, is Linux Mint. I feel like Linux Mint really loves to implement the sound theme for their desktops. And I don't... I, I find that... Um, well, honestly, I find some of their sounds a little bit abrasive. Uh, like, I think, what is it? They're... It's something... So one of them has this horrible chirp sound to it, and it just feels like fingernails on a chalkboard, practically, to me. It's just... It's... And I don't even actually mind the sound of fingernails on a chalkboard, so it must be worse than that. Um, so it's weird, to me. The, the the whole idea of desktop sounds... not. Not weird, like get it away from me. Weird, just just interesting. I, w- I would like to hear more about sort of the history of sound effects, sound event sounds on desktops. Because in a weird way, I don't. Maybe it's just me. I don't really remember them previous to Linux. Like I don't. I I I could be wrong because I misremember things frequently, and things get sublimated. But I don't remember there being event sounds on on certainly my previous operating system. And, and I don't remember it being a thing ever. Like I just don't remember that being a thing. I mean, I, I know that it there, I, I I don't think that it was like that it didn't exist until I started using Linux. I just didn't really feel like it was a, an expectation. And then when I got to Linux, it felt like there was this, there must, I, I don't feel like everyone using Linux wants event sounds on their desktop. I just feel like when I started using Linux, it became clear to me that a Apparently, there's a group of people out there who care about sound effects on their desktop. Because otherwise, why would these systems even exist? Why would it be default on Linux Mint, for instance? So that's just kind of interesting. I have noticed a little bit ever, you know, since using Linux, I have noticed that, like, you know, you'll... You'll hear Windows event sounds, like if you hear someone, um, I don't know what they're doing, really, but you'll hear it, like, if you're on a a video call with them or something, you'll hear something happen on their desktop that'll chime or something, and you'll think, oh, I think that's a Windows sound, uh, so i mean is i don't know is it a windows thing or is it a windows and a mac thing and i've just completely forgotten or or is it just really really Im- imbalanced you know across across the spectrum some people like it some people don't i don't know so anyway that's what Lib Canberra does it just it provides it provides sound effects for specific actions and you can usually find those actions in system settings if you go to your sound um a uh, little your audio tab whatever it's labeled as. There's usually some kind of section for like the the volume of sound effects. Uh, and then if you go to, for instance, uh, where is it? Desktop you know, workspace behavior maybe. The workspace behavior. Uh, there's some some place. Desktop effects. No, that wouldn't be it. I don't know where it is in KDE. I guess that that that's that's further proof or evidence that I really I don't think I I don't think I run into it that much. Like in real life, notifications. Maybe it's notifications. No, I don't know where it is in KDE. That's how little I think about it. But on Linux Mint, I can actually, I can picture it. You you go to your the system settings, and you go into I don't know. You know, I think it's just sound. Um, and and you can actually set the the different sounds for each different um for each different alert, and it's it, You know, there's like I don't know, ten of them or twelve of them. Um, I I don't remember there them including a whole lot of alternate choices. Weirdly enough, but but you can you can set it. Ah, here it is in 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 KDE. That's really that's a lot of places to go. So you go to notifications, and then at the bottom of notifications, there's applications configure. Click on configure, and there's a list of all the applications you've got installed on your system, or at least all the ones that you've got installed that aren't flat packs, I suspect. Yeah, looks like it. Um, And then no, this is a flat pack, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, And then you can click on that. And you can click on configure events. And then you've got a whole, you get got all the the events that that thing knows about, and then you can set the sound that gets played at that event. So there you go. That's your window into libcanberra from a KDE system. As I say, I'm just not a user of that. Let's talk about libcap and libcap-ng, or really libcape in a way. Uh, Libcap- libcapability lib is what it's what, is what that stands for. And there are two of them. There's libcap, libcap-ng. Ng. In the open source uh, world, generally, is, from what I've heard, it, it means next generation or new generation. And it is uh, a way to denote that, hey, here's this thing that existed and I have re-implemented as a, a complete drop-in replacement. libcap, libcap-ng, those are... Essentially the same, they, they serve the same purpose. They're two different implementations of that thing. libcap 2.63 is the original, and its its job was to discover in your application, you could use this to discover what the current user of your application is actually capable of doing. That's an important thing because if, if the user isn't doesn't have the right permissions to do a thing, then they can't do that thing. Uh, whereas libcap-ng uh, does the same thing, but uh, it 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 does it in fewer lines of code. Essentially, I mean that is its main that's its main um, purpose. Really, is to is to make it simpler for the programmer to make these kinds of checks so that they can be more specific about what the user actually needs to do in order for something to work so with the old libcap it's the libcap ng's author claims or asserts that with the old libcap it was so complex like 60 lines of code or something like that to just check whether the user could do a certain task that what people normally did or often did they would just check if you're root if you're not root they'd say nope can't do it you have to you have to run this program as root and that fixes the problem just like everything is fixed when you just give yourself blanket permissions for everything now the libcap ng author asserts that this result in systems that aren't as secure as they could be, because everyone's just saying, "I oh, just run this thing as root, that way I don't have to write the 60 lines of code every time I want to check whether you can actually do the thing that I, I want to let you do. You can imagine this with um, system demons and, I don't know, uh, something like K3B, although I... I- I shouldn't call that out specifically because i don't know how that works i don't know what it's using i mean i guess we could try to really quick see whether it's using um k3b ldd grep so i'm just doing a ldd user bin k3b pipe grep libcap. It is using libcap. Okay, so we could argue, possibly spuriously, we could argue that K3b, well, you know, we don't know. So, I mean, we could find out. We could look at the code. That would be the correct thing to do, but I'm not going to do that. Um, Not right now, anyway. Uh, So, let's say for a moment that K3b or an application like it is using libcap, and you want to write data to a to a peripheral, to a device. Now, that is normally not something that you can just do because we don't know whether you own that device as the user. It could be someone else's device in the system and you shouldn't be writing data to it. So K3B probably, because I trust K3B, they've probably written quite a lot of, of code to try to figure out what kind of permissions you have set right now to see whether you can actually do that. Are you, the, are you the, a member of the correct group and so on? As long as you are, then it'll proceed. Um, now, if K3B had been lazier, then they could have just said, you know what? I can't ascertain whether you own that device. Why don't you log, quit K3B and start it back up as root, and then we'll just be able to do whatever we want. But that's literally whatever you want, right? I mean, that's across the board. You are root now. You can do whatever you want. It's much, much cleaner, obviously, to have libcap, to, to have written all the code for libcap, or to do it in, like, literally two or three lines with libcap in G, To see, hey, I want to know specifically whether this user can write to this device. That's all I need to know. I don't care if the user is root, as long as that user is capable of doing this thing. That's what libcap and libcap ng Uh, has been designed for the the argument for libcap ng is that with libcap ng ideally programmers will will go to the trouble of being uh, specific about what they need to know rather than just saying with libcap that they're they're disincentivized from writing that 60 lines of code not the greatest programmer in the world but i know that when when you're writing a a program and you have the choice (laughs) of spending your afternoon, uh, checking for correct permissions or something. And you realize after looking at the library and trying, you know, looking, reading the documentation, that's already taken like an hour. So you're reading the documentation and you realize, oh my gosh, just to check to see if they can, if my user can write to this DVD device, I have to do what? You know, and you just see 60 lines of code or whatever it is. I keep saying 60 because that's what libcapng says it would take. Um, But you see that, and I mean, that is literally, to some programmers at least that's an afternoon to get that right that's a full afternoon for some programmers it might not be it'll be a copy and a paste and adjust a couple of little things they know what they're doing super simple maybe it takes 15 minutes instead of 5 maybe it takes 30 instead of 15 whatever not a big deal to other people it's it's almost a deal breaker and either way if you're if you're faced with the choice of shall i write all of this code or just a little bit of code, then you're going to take the little bit of code for lots of reasons. Not only does it keep you going for that day, like your momentum continues. You don't have to stop and learn about permissions and figure out all the different code that you need to write and where the code needs to go, and how to make it sure that it's organized. But in the future, when you're maintaining your software, when you're making sure that there aren't any bugs, and you're updating things, that that's sixty more lines of code you have to you have to think about every time you look at your code in the future. So if there is something simpler like libcap-ng that can make it easier for people to to maintain. Code that is, you know, that does its due diligence uh, for security purposes, then I think I think that's great. So lib ng is probably the way I would go were I faced with this kind of quandary. Next up is libcddb. That's an online CD database library. I feel like we've talked about cddb before. It's a really useful big project out there in the world um, that simply acts as a catalog of all the different albums uh, in the world. So, um, freedb.org is no longer, um, a project. But if you go to, um, if you go to gnudb.org, gnudb.org, uh, that's the new home for freedb.org database. And that's what you should use in all of your, um, all of your applications that that need to query an online database, uh, as I understand it, and i haven 't looked at it in into it lately, but it 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 does things like it figures out that um this this set of songs at these lengths seems like it must be this album because you figure well there 's got to be a billion songs that are three minutes and or you know two minutes and forty four seconds i i don 't know how long pop songs actually are, but Let's say they're 2 minutes and 44 seconds, a bunch of them. But how many 2 minute 44 second songs are preceded by a 3 minute and 1 second song and followed by a 2 minute and 58 second song? probably not that many in that exact order and of course it gets bigger the more songs you have on an album so that comparison of what's the exact order of these time the time stamps for each song for each track what can we what can we guess that album might be now if there's metadata that's available then you can you know use that um i i think some services also use audio um Audio wave comparisons, but I could be wrong about that, and that might that might not be in the database. That might be something separate. Uh, I haven't looked at the database itself recently, but certainly if you're using like Easy Tag or uh, KID3, those kinds of meta tagging. Applications a lot of them have options for uh, a CDDB destination, and GNUdb.org is uh, the one that you would use. And the reason that they can make those quick queries out to CDDB is because of libcddb. Next up is libcdio, and that is a GNU CD access library. So it contains a library for CD-ROM and CD-IMAGE access, Im- uh, applications wishing to be uh, oblivious to the o- and device-dependent properties of a CD-ROM or the specific details of various CD image formats can just use this library. It's a library for working with ISO 9660 file systems. Uh, Lib ISO 9660 is also included in libcdio. That's libcdio. If you want to read from a CD, this is the library you're going to be using. You're going to open that device using a function of libcdio. ISO 9660 is the is a specification for optical media, and the it, it was you know as long as you have this library, you can read and write. Well, you can read at least, uh, and I think write uh, to ISO 9660 really easily. It, it because the library again that's got it all figured out for you. So all you need to do is use a function from that library, and now you're reading information from ISO 9660. Um, that has I, I think that kind of thing, the, this universal, uh, well, I'm going to say universal disk format, but that is actually something separate. That's UDF. Um, and I've talked about that before. UDF is used typically in DVDs as the universal disk format, so that any device can read from that. ISO 9660 is is a precursor to UDF, and, and I think, I mean, I think... I think we sometimes undervalue and take for granted the the fact that, for instance, a CD, ISO 9660, I mean, everyone could use that. Like, you put it into any kind of computer with any operating system, and and they just understood how to read those. And can you imagine if we had some kind of universal disk format, like UDF, uh, to, to bridge all of the platforms? I mean, I just think that would be brilliant. I, I loved UDF... Uh, for such a long time, I I I, use, I used to use it all the time because I needed cr- uh, compatibility, just you know, super easy compatibility between different operating systems at, at that particular job that I was at. So I used UDF all the time. It was a great disk format. the The problem was that the platforms I was using UDF on, like to to go to from from Linux to those systems, it, it, they they dropped UDF support. <laughs> <laughs> because you know h- optical media just became not as fashionable and so they just literally they just were like eh, no one will ever need udf on this platform again and so it it got dropped so even the the thing that was universal they they managed to make non universal um shocker the company that i'm talking about was apple uh cdio that's that one libcdio-paranoia is the cd paranoia library uh from libcdio this is a cdda reader um distribution reading audio from the cd-rom directly as data with no analog step between so in other words if you've got for instance audio on a, a disk which people do sometimes then the fear is that sometimes the audio could become corrupt during the translation uh, from the disk to your to 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 a destination, whereas this library allows you to read that data just as raw bits and when you're when you're reading raw bits, of course the computer can verify. Did I get that bit or not? If I didn't get the bit, hold on, let me go back and try to read it. And that's what paranoia will do. It goes back and it'll try to read that bit and read that bit until it gets a success. So libcdio-paranoia, in theory, can rescue... Um, discs that aren't playing in a CD player, like maybe they scratch, they're, they're scratched, and so the, the, the data, the data comes through distorted, or, or, you know, it skips over that data or something, whereas supposedly with lib paranoia, lib cdio paranoia, and, and cd paranoia, those libraries, that'll rescue a thing. I have had horrible luck with that. I, I, believe I've never rescued anything with paranoia I'm not saying it's no good I'm just saying I guess when I've resorted to it whatever I was attempting to solve must have been too far gone because it is yeah it has basically never worked for me so I don't I, I, I can't uh, yeah I don't I don't think about lib uh, cdio paranoia or cd paranoia much at all because this just never worked for me um happy to have it work for me at some point in the future but so far nothing uh and although i guess you know if if you argue that if i gave it enough time maybe it would eventually work because there are some there's a disk i think i probably still have it that's pretty badly scratched and i'd love to extract the data from it and i've let it run for like days and it just hasn't it hasn't worked so i don't know maybe maybe i need to let it run for several years um i'm not going to do that though okay next up is libclc and this is an uh, open cl library open cl is the open computer language or open computing language it is the it's a, a processing a parallel processing language to help you get to, to for you to to be able to use CPU and GPU processing together. It is um, developed by the Kronos group, which is the sort of OpenGL uh, Vulkan group that that does a bunch of, you know, most of the open source graphic work these days. Um, They're huge. They do a lot of, uh, you know, really important, like amazingly important work. Uh, And it's it's open standards. It's royalty-free open standards for 3D graphics, virtual and augmented reality, parallel computing, machine learning, and vision prop, uh, processing. Huge, huge, huge deal. And if you look through the specifications for OpenCL, which they have on chronos.org, you can get there to the, the white paper, or, or whatever it's called. I call it a white paper. Um, maybe it's a, I don't know. Well, it's a specifications. what it is, but it's paper and it's white if you print it out on white paper. Um, you, you get, I mean, there's there's companies here, you know, people from companies listed in the acknowledgements that are big deals. AMD, uh, Apple, ARM, Broadcom, Blizzard, Codeplay, electronics, uh, Electronic Arts, Ericsson, Freescale, Graphic Remedy, IBM, Intel, Imagination Technologies, Sony, um, Los Alamos National Arts. Laboratory, that's interesting, Kronos, Kestrel Institute, NVIDIA, forgot them, Uh, ST Microelectronics, don't even know what that is, Symbian, Texas Instruments, really, like, just companies that, you know, are, are a big deal, which, going back to that discussion of, like, where's open source today, the fact that there's a Kronos group that acknowledges two pages of people from companies that have millions of dollars supporting their efforts, I mean, in some cases, billions of dollars supporting effort, and it's it's going towards a a universally recognized cross compatible language to enable 3d graphics i mean that's a big big deal it's 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 weird it's 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 a big deal but it's also a scary thing you know because as an open source enthusiast you might say well i don't want to be that dependent on the companies i've just listed like those are companies that I don't I I you know you, we probably don't necessarily like everything that they do. Did I say two pages? It's actually three pages of names, single column. Um you know so you you might not think well I don't I don't want to have to rely on all these companies to get graphics on my computer and I think that's fair enough. But temper that with the reality that those companies exist and they could be all doing their own thing. They could all be working in a silo, and we could have a case where every single different kind of computer or different operating system has a different way of of rendering graphics. I mean, this kind of thing has existed before. It's not a good place to be. So the fact that that some force is, is inspiring them to work together to provide something that, Everyone can use that. Really, is a big deal. It's it's an important thing. And once again, I I don't think that that is a foregone conclusion. I don't think that has to happen. It could it could happen differently. It could be that they don't do that. But for whatever reason, and it's the influence of open source, they've decided to actually work together, and we're all benefiting from it. Depending on what you're doing with your computer, maybe you're not benefiting from it. Maybe you don't even run a graphic server. Maybe you just type text. That's fine. But for the people who are, like, running Steam and and playing, you know, the latest game, Cyberpunk 2077 or Starfield or whatever the latest game is when you hear this, then that's—this is a big deal. Okay, so it says—this is just reading from the specification document because it is actually pretty interesting. I'm not going to read all 385 pages of the document, but a little bit of an introduction might be nice. Modern processor architectures have embraced parallelism as an important pathway to increased performance. Facing technical challenges with higher clock speeds in a fixed power envelope, central processing units, at CPUs, now improve performance by adding multiple cores. Graphics processing units, GPUs, have also evolved from fixed function rendering devices into programmable parallel processors. As today's computer systems often include highly parallel CPUs, GPUs, and other types of processors, it is important to enable Software developers to take full advantage of these heterogeneous processing platforms. So that's that's the 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 statement, the the mission statement of OpenCL. Basically, we have all of these these different kinds of processors that are capable of really really maximizing like the, the 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 data flow but a a programmer needs to be able to access that power. And so OpenCL is one way to do that. The uh, gateway, and there are others. OpenCL is not the only one, but I've only ever seen OpenCL. Uh, Everyone seems to be using it. I mean, you might notice that Microsoft isn't on this list. This is an old specification paper. It could be that Microsoft has come to the table. I don't know. I haven't haven't checked. But um, certainly at the jobs... In film that I've worked on, uh, worked in, and there have been a few uh, OpenCL or, or you know, other other similar technology has been the go-to solution. So I don't know what else other people what, what other people are using, but OpenCL um, is is quite quite the popular solution. Okay, and quite quite powerful. So that's libclc is is the is the um is the library that you're looking at there and that's BSD MIT dual license implementation of the library requirements of the OpenCLC programming language as specified by OpenCL specification. I think it's time for a coffee break. That's what I think. Come back and we'll pick up a couple more. <laughs> Coffee, you know, you win some and you lose some and. This week I feel like I kind of lost it because I I went to the store uh, this past week and got some coffee and the place that I go again you bring your own container you fill it up with stuff out of a bin the the coffee bins are three there are three coffee bins and they never have enough coffee in any of the bins to fill the container that I want to take with me it's about a kilogram of of coffee that I try to get for for however long that'll last me and and they never have enough so I just I it's the same price they don't care so I'll I just combine all the everything that they have into one bin. And that's my custom blend. Well, this time around, um, I, I, I had to do all three bins. Sometimes you only have to do two, you know, but this time it was three. So I have coffee in from three different bins in this one container that I have. And this time around, I, I, I'm hoping that it's just because I'm sort of on the top layer. And I hope that once I get further down, I'll, I'll get to the other bins, you know, because I mean, I don't think I didn't shake up the, the container. So it's like the coffee beans are just just laying as I placed them. So I've feel like there are probably three separate stratas of of coffee bins in this container maybe i should shake it up i don't know um but this the the coffee that i'm on right now is it's the leftmost container note to self don't do that again uh the leftmost container not good it really, it's just not good. It's not flavorful. It's not strong. It It is, it, it's not, I'm not saying it's, yeah, it's not strong. It's like not, it doesn't have flavor. It's not very good. I've tried percolating it. I've tried um, plunger. I've tried, have I tried? I don't think I've tried the espresso, the stuff, the stovetop espresso. Maybe I'll try that next. So I don't know what I've, you know, what, what's up with that, that bin of coffee. Not my favorite. So I'm, I'm I'm still working on getting a a truly satisfying cup of coffee out of this thing, and it's taking me a while. So yeah, it's just a hazard of of the process, really. This is. um you go to a container, bring your own container store, and and you just, you take what you can get, uh, and sometimes what you can get is not the, maybe your first choice. Okay, so we're back into libraries here, but before we start up again, let's talk a little bit, I think it might be worth talking about the difference between scripting and programming. A lot of us, I think, have kind of a instinctual knowledge of what the difference is between a scripting language and a programming language but maybe we don't really think about why there's a difference and some of you probably don't really know the difference it it all looks like programming to you which would be fair because i think broadly it is i think programming is generally defined as as creating algorithms for a computer to repeat and and that qualifies programming in a, you know, a programming language that needs to be compiled and programming in a scripted language. Both of those things are are programming. So it's completely fair to just broadly say, yes, I am programming right now. That's not, I don't think that's misrepresenting anything at all. And I think it's important to maintain the knowledge that those two are, essentially the same processes. Because it's silly, I think, you know, for people to, to maybe view one kind of programming as maybe more uh, important than the other. Um, you know, like, I, I feel like sometimes people might start to think, well, if you're not programming in C or C++ or, or those two, um, then you're not really programming, are you? You're, you're just, you know, you're doing, you're doing the easy stuff. Well, it's not easy. It's just as hard. Or it's not just as hard. Well, it is just as hard to program in python or java or bash the the difference is that that the difference is where you're spending your is in part where you're spending your effort a lot of the like the c stuff i mean the c demo applications i've done through this library uh section you you see kind of how many lines of code sometimes it takes just to get some some you know just to get down like a, a, a one little thing one process that may be in a different language you'd be able to just invoke exactly one module and and suddenly you get the same result so you're not spending the same time on the same processes now and and you may be well you you probably are writing more code you know the lower down you get so i guess is that harder i don't know if it's harder does it take more time yes it does possibly depends on where you are too. I mean, if you've been writing C for 20 years, you're probably pretty fast at it, and there's probably a lot you can do in relatively little amount of time, even though you are writing more code. You're just doing it faster because you don't have to think about certain things, whereas someone who's just started writing Python yesterday, it's going to take them a long time to even get just a just a, a window to appear at all. I mean, it'll probably take months. To, well, maybe not. It depends on what they're using. Anyway, point is, programming is programming. Both are, you know, any, any way you do it, I think, is a valuable way. I think it's, it's a legitimate way of if you're if you're coming up with a way to automate something for yourself or to do something different than what your computer can already do, I think that's great. But what's the difference? What what's what's a scripting What is a scripting language versus a programming language what when are you when are you scripting versus programming and there is a difference and many of us may think well the difference is that scripting is a you're you're writing in an interpreted language doesn't need to get compiled versus programming that that needs to be compiled in order to to run even though sometimes that compiled process uh you know happens Uh, very quickly or or as part of a a different process that you don't even see for yourself you don't really do the compiling yourself because some other application is doing it for you whatever whatever the case may be there's like this knowledge that well, programming is done with a it is the 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 end of a the end step of a program of programming programming is compiling whereas the end step of a scripting language is that you just run the thing and literally that takes the the form of gcc example dot c dash o my sample return. So you're, you're invoking a compiler. That's programming. Whereas with something else, Python, you just type in Python, and now you're in Python, and you can do things like print, Parentheses quote hello close quote close parentheses and it prints hello and then you can try to f- struggle to get out of it oh exit parentheses parentheses that's how you get out of it so there is a difference there um, but here's the thing um, with with compiled w- when you're programming and and this is important for the section that we're in right now with the libraries. You're including libraries. You're you're including functions of libraries within your code. Whereas in a scripting language, you are more often than not. And there are some ex- exceptions, just to muddy the waters, but more often than not, broadly speaking, you are not. You're not doing that. You're not embedding code into your code. You are stringing code together. So, for instance, if if you just do a find uh, in your home directory dash type f dash i name quote asterisk txt so that's going to find all the txt files in your home directory wow i have a lot more than i realized uh maybe i'll do license all capital dot txt and make that a name there well there's a lot there too wow there are a lot of um there are a lot of txt files in my home directory who knew all right how about if i just make it literally license.txt there's still a lot Okay, whatever. Doesn't matter. So there's a lot. So if I pipe that to grep um, for anything that also contains... the word supertux super tux then I only find one, two, three, four results. So I've just scripted something essentially. I mean I'm doing it interactive fairly interactively, so I don't know if it's exactly the same thing, but I've just kind of scripted this this process where my computer will find all the license.txt files on my in my home directory and it'll filter out for me because I've piped the output of find into the input of grep. It'll find anything that that in that long long path name includes the word super tux, and that's significant because that has find and grep are 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 applications that exist, and I'm not I'm not embedding them into something else. I am I am just stringing them together. Now I can I could I could make this into a shell script, emacs, myscript.sh, I could type the same exact thing, or because I'm lazy, copy and paste the exact same thing. And I'll put a little shebang, shebang bin, wait, is it user? Yeah, probably user bin env space bash. Then I type the same thing, and now if I do bash dot slash myscript.sh I get the same kind of output, but I still haven't embedded code into that script. Uh, I've simply invoked applications, and they're running as intended. But through through some Linux POSIX um, trickery, I've I've strung them together. I've I've rewired how sort of one outputs its information and how the other one in uh, receives information. I've redirected output to input and and now they're together. Whereas in an application, as we've seen in the demo uh, applications with programming, if we do my sh, and then we do a hash include angle bracket standard io.h close bracket. Now I've included something. I've I've embedded the code from standard IO into this application. I didn't have to type it all out myself. I don't have to go copy and paste the code, but that's what the include statement functionally does. And so now that code is part of my program. And in fact, that that iteration of that code is part of my program because if I compile that right now, then then that becomes that application. All those all that those lines of code are now in my application. I think there's a significance a significant difference to those two pro- processes um and i think they're both very very powerful uh one the the stringing things together in a scripting language that's really powerful because it's it's pretty darned um intuitive if if you know the the things that you're stringing together like you very much you're you're building a new application by by combining other applications but the way that you know to combine those two other applications is because you've used them in other contexts and i think that's i think that's probably why in in a way grep is such a powerful little tool because so many people linux users when they're they're learning terminal they learn grep pretty early on because it's something that you can pipe into and then you you develop more understanding of what grep can do like oh I could do I could do a grep but I could exclude the results instead of include them or I could I can do a case insensitive search instead of a sensitive search and all these other these these little tools that it provides you and it becomes a component a building block for more complex actions that you might want to do in your shell, and it's not just grep, obviously. I mean, there there are lots of things that I think a, a a Linux user uses here and there. Maybe maybe as an introduction to the terminal, or maybe just because you you discover it and you start using it because it's useful to you. Uh, rev being a something that sort of leaps to mind, or even tr, just where it's like, oh, I, I see the utility for that all of a sudden now, now that I. I, I I know how I I, I know I want to get to a certain place. It's just what's the easiest way to, for me to get there? Oh, what if I reverse the string and parse parse whatever's at the beginning rather than trying to find the end? Yeah, that's a lot easier. I'll do that, and then I'll pipe it back to rev to get it back. You know, and and you can kind of develop all these little tricks yourself by using them, and that that's harder to do with a library. Like you can you can do it with a library if if you if you practice. But how how many people sit around? practicing, trivial-seeming programming tasks. People do it, but not not all of us do it all the time. And, and that's what it would take. You'd have to just sit there at your text editor or your IDE and include a library and just see what you can do with it. Which, I mean, that's a valid way to learn a, a library, believe me. It is just, it's, it's not quite as natural as learning the commands that that are functional on an everyday basis. And and that, that very frequently the default of those, those applications does something useful. Whereas with a library, because they very frequently do so many minute little specific things, even if you are just doing a little test run in a programming language, you, you do one or two things in a library, and, and as far as you know, you haven't done anything. All you've done is, I don't know, queried the size of a window you know like well great now what what do i do with that how do i even get that output like the program didn't fail to compile so i guess it must have worked but i don't i don't you don't see the difference it doesn't do anything for you and i think that's why bash is such a such a very very useful introduction into the concept of programming because there's so much you can do that is immediately useful whereas even something like python which, I mean, you know, people kind of, kind of debate whether that's a scripting language or a programming language. But even, even Python, like, there's, there's, a, there's like this big chasm be- be- between just the normal user who says, oh yeah, I should learn how to program, and then a point in Python where they're actually doing something that's useful. Which in a way is kind of why I like, why I've enjoyed introducing people to Ansible in ansible i kind of think almost as a module of python i'm sure ansible wouldn't be happy to hear me say that i don't know how they feel about that but i mean in a way it is it's, it's such a python sort of adjacent process where where you, you, you're instead of writing python you're you're writing yaml really and then you you run it in ansible and it does a bunch of things for you it makes sure that your end state is exactly what you've described and that's a very user-centric kind of thing it's it's purpose-built to be used, whereas Python—it's just the tools. It's just hammers and nails, screws and screwdrivers and drills, and you don't know what to do with it. You don't—you don't know what it can do for you yet because you don't even know how to use them. So maybe you can do some cool tricks like oh look there's the time i just got it from python uh, there's a listing of my directory that was an advanced task in python i had to include this special module and then i had to or do they they don't call it include right they call it import i had to import a module which essentially is like the pipe action in a, in a weird way so you're including the module or importing the module and then you you do the, the OS.dir or the OS.list, whatever it is, I think it's OS. Uh, command and and you get the output. And and that seems cool and, and useful, but redundant. I mean you certainly already have ls and it gives you much more useful uh, output. A format of output that's more useful, and it, it just takes a long time to get from yes, I am typing things and making things happen in this this language, and, and oh, I can actually this is actually helping me get things done today. And with programming, I think I think that chasm is even even wider than something like Python, which again I I think there's an argument that it's a little bit of a script, a little bit of a programming language with with a programming language where you're including libraries and having to learn about functions and methods and classes and things like that. I think it takes a lot a lot longer to sort of get the feel for why that works and how that works and what's even possible as opposed to a scripting language where you see all the pieces in front of you. And each piece has a, a, a very complete description of what it can and, importantly, what it cannot do. And, and that is important because, I mean, that's kind of one of the drawbacks of, of a scripting language. You, you you want to do something, but <laughs> the, the tool set that you have available to you just doesn't have the specificity that you need for that thing i've run into that myself i can't think of a, a good example I've, I've tried to think of one but sometimes you're you're you know you, you'll you you'll know exactly what you want to do and you'll just realize there's just no way for me to to do all of this as a one-line command or or it's no way no way for me to do all of that without going out to some temporary file first and then processing the temporary file that kind of thing so scripting scripting is you've got lots of little box cars. And you're you're tethering them together into a train. Programming. You're opening up all the boxcars, taking the contents out, and putting them into one single boxcar. That's my analogy. All right. Next up for the libraries is libqcue. Um. So a Cue Sheet, C-U-E, Cue Sheet is a metadata file describing the layout of a CD or a DVD, and libq parses a Cue Sheet, and it provides an API for you to be able to then access that that um, that Cue Sheet, the the parsed data, which obviously is important. Um, I've never seen a Cue Sheet. I don't know what these actually are, I mean, other than that it's just been described. Uh, and the, the GitHub uh, page that describes the library libq does reference a wikipedia sheet about q sheets but i i don't know what a a q sheet is exactly although some of the some of the um the, like, the metadata might seem familiar. Like, you may have seen things like CD text file, flags, catalog, title, performer, songwriter. Um, and for a while, there was a a thing where uh, some CD players were trying to uh, make it a thing that CD text, like, CDs would, would, would contain more more data about what was on it for for CD players to display them and i think i imagine it was probably probably starting to ramp up and then probably CDs fell out of fashion. That's kind of my cause I feel like I heard about CD text, for instance, and then kind of eventually and then shortly thereafter people had moved on from CDs. So I don't know if it was just a, a matter of timing or just not enough adoption or what. But anyway, that's CD text. This this isn't necessarily CD text. A cue sheet itself simply has more information about the contents of the CD, which may or may not be expressed as CD text, it could just be, you know, metadata. Um, what that's meant to provide, I guess, depends on on the cue sheet. Uh, it it is typically things like, yeah, like you know, artist name, performer, track name, things like that. Um, but I've I've never I've never dealt with that. But that's libq, anyway. That's what that does. Okay. Next up is libdbus menu. This is a GTK D-Bus menu protocol, a small library that was created by pulling out some common code uh, from indicator applet, and it passes a menu structure across D-Bus so that a program can create a menu without really having to think about how it's going to display, how it's going to be displayed on whatever other end. I think this is a great example of a library of what a library does. This is the kind of thing it's it's like well we're going to we're going to look at what what information goes into making a library and we'll define that information and how you decode that on your side is up to you. It's it's up to your your desktop environment, but the, just the raw data, we can, we can build that for whatever reason, from whatever sources we can build that and then pass that over to you. And I, I mean, really that's kind of, that's what interprocess communication, uh, and, and arguably even some network communication ought to be really just, just send the data and the, the structure or like describe the structure and then let the other side assemble all of those things in a way that, that 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 the other side needs to assemble it, whatever that might be. It might be a different widget set than what you expect. It might be a might not be a graphical thing at all. It might be just turned into plain text on uh, on some kind of terminal display or, or whatever. And I think that's really 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 vital. Like that kind of separation of 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 content and structure from. I guess implementation uh, or I guess I guess content from style broadly speaking there's um, an accompanying lib dbus menu for cute as well that's lib dbus dbus menu-qt and it's it's exactly the same same thing then there's lib disc id this is the music brains disc id library uh which attempts to create a um, an ID for a disk by by reading the table of contents of a CD and and generating a unique identifier uh, and this this is how MusicBrainz the the Music database organizes its catalog. This is a library for determining what a CD contains based on musicbrains.org is a little bit like GnuDB I guess, or freeDB. It's a place that catalogs. All the albums available on CD. They do that by assigning unique IDs to known albums, which you can then ideally access through ID. Okay, probably the last one, libdmx. I mean, we've gotten through the Cs, at least. That's a good thing. Uh, Libdmtx is a package that um, Enables programs to read and write data matrix barcodes of the modern ECC two hundred variety. So this is, I mean, it's barcodes. This is this is important for, I think, I think especially for like small businesses because a lot of times they struggle with, well, how how do we process items in our in stock quickly because it's got this barcode on it and we don't, you know, like what do you do with that barcode? Well, I don't know if this library is really going to change anyone's life directly because the Chances are, if you're if you're just working, you're a small bookseller. You know, you're just trying to process books. You're probably not going to go and grab this library and program a solution for yourself. But the, that this library exists obviously helps uh, programmers create applications like little uh, payment or, or the POS point of sale applications to help to help people process um, to process barcodes. I think the The other problem with barcodes, of course, is that they do require some kind of reader which uh, historically has been, you know, it's been a special device that aren't, it's not really sold usually, just kind of like off the shelf. You don't just go to a store and get a barcode reader. You have to like find a barcode reader. Luckily in my limited experience with this, they've been pretty generic. Like once you find a barcode reader, you just plug it in and it it just reads in stuff as a serial, you know, just raw data, just a string of numbers really. It's it's really basic. Uh, Again, basic to you and me, not basic to someone who just wants to make their computer l- look and see what book they're holding up to it or, or you know, whatever item it is, um, independent album or, you know, like whatever you're selling at your little store. So I don't know. I I, I dislike it. I don't like it. I think QR codes in a way has been revolutionary, c- combined at least with like the prevalence of like digital imaging, like, w- you know, your phone in your pocket. So I mean, that's been huge. And I think on a pra- on a pragmatic level, that's where really, I think all of that should go. I think we should stop with the barcodes and just use QR codes. Uh, I think that would be much, much easier for everyone. Because I mean, even with open source libraries to look through, l- look at the, the barcode, it's, again, what are you gonna do with it? Actually, you know what? I think we could get through the D section as well. We've only got like two D section or two libraries left in D, and then we would be in E. So let's let's do those two and then we'll stop this episode. So libdvd nav and libdvd read. These are libraries you use every day if you play DVDs on your computer. Uh, I still do that. I I play DVDs. I have a little uh, outboard. Well on my tower I have a built-in optical media drive now. But uh for my laptop I have a little outboard DVD player. It was like twenty bucks back in the States and I've been using it for the past decade. Um and, and libdvd read can read the video disc and then libdvd nav helps the application uh reading the thing actually be able to navigate through the the menus and uh, multi-angle playback if if your DVD has that uh, and interactive little DVD games things like that so all of that stuff that's provided by or, or the, the reading is provided by lib dvd read nav by nav uh, and really both of those are provided by video land so if you're using VLC then th- that's where all of this stuff comes from if you're using VLC as a flat pack, of course, then you um, you are using you are using these libraries again they've been downloaded again for you you're not even using the ones that have been installed on slackware but you know what you didn't have to really think about it it just happened magically and that is the magic of Flatpak. so there you go that's all the c's and the d's in the library uh section which is great because now we're in the e's and there's only two of those so i mean really i'm almost tempted to do those now but i'm not going to we're going to stop the episode here thanks for listening i'll talk to you next time